This is They Create Worlds, Episode 27, The Magnavox Patent Lawsuits. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create World. I'm Jeff, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Today, we are doing... Part 2 of Magnavox. But the history of the Odyssey, the Odyssey 2, or other stuff, it is more the history of litigation. That's right. Obviously, whenever you have technology involved, there are always lawsuits that follow. Lawsuits on top of lawsuits on top of lawsuits. Just ask Intel and AMD, for instance, about that. Or Apple and Microsoft when it came to the Mac OS. In video game history specifically, though, I don't think there has been any specific topic subject to more litigation than the Magnavox Odyssey, because Ralph Baer was an engineer for a very large defense contractor, which meant that he was very familiar with the patent process and the idea of filing for patents, Mm -hmm. where a lot of the startup companies that came later weren't necessarily thinking in those terms. And then because Ralph Baer really was first, all of the stuff that followed owed his technology a debt in one way or another, even when they weren't directly influenced by what he did. Though, as we'll see, there was a lot of direct influence on later developments and what the Odyssey did. All right. So how do we start tackling this topic? We have Magnavox, which we've already said kind of was in its heyday and sort of dying a slow, painful death over the 70s when it did put out the Odyssey. And then the Odyssey got put out of its misery because of the crash. Where did the litigation tie into this? So to start, we have to go back to the creation of the Odyssey system back when it was still just colloquially known as the brown box in Mm -hmm. Ralph Baer's lab. Ralph Baer, as I said, being an engineer that was very familiar with the patent process from the very beginning, literally the very beginning of creating this system, Mm -hmm. he was very aware of the need to document what he did in order to engage in the patent process. So even the very first document that he wrote which was a four-page proposal written September 1st, 1966, Mm -hmm. in which he proposed the very broad outlines of doing a video game system. Even that, when he created it, he immediately had witnessed by a fellow engineer, Hmm. which was important for establishing that as a legal document. You need some kind of witness. You can't just claim, oh yeah, this is the thing that Bob and I were working on in our garage for 20 years. I mean, you can try to prove that. But he was documenting everything, having everything witnessed. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, he did file several patents, two of which are the most important. One of those is the so-called 480 patent. The other is the so-called 507 patent. And the reason they're called that is all patents are numbered sequentially based on when they're issued. Mm -hmm. I think it's when they're issued and not when they're filed, because those are two very different dates, file date and issue date. Obviously, now patents are well up into the millions because lots of people have invented stuff. 
the 480 patent is United States patent number 3,728,480. So sort of shorthanding it. Exactly. And then similarly, the other patent is a similarly kind of high number. So they're referred to just by those last three digits. So the 480 patent was really the kind of very broad-based, I have come up with a system, an apparatus. And the patent is actually called Television Gaming and Training Apparatus. Mm -hmm. It basically says in this patent, I have come up with an apparatus that will hook into a television receiver. And that's important. That's specifically a television receiver. We'll get to that. Mm -hmm. For the... Generation, display, manipulation, and use, I'm quoting now, of symbols or geometric figures upon the screen of the television receivers for the purpose of training simulation, for playing games, and for engaging in other activities by one or more participants. So this is the basic patent for the brown box itself, for this system he came up with where he had this RF modulator plugging into the receivers on the television and beaming this video signal into the television to be received on channel three or channel four. Those are the channels he chose, and those remained the channels right up until the time that video game systems no longer needed a channel where you put it on the aux mm -hmm. instead. This is the very, very basic patent that is kind of the foundation of video games, because the whole idea of a video game is this, that you are beaming the signal not beaming, but sending the signal into the television and having it be rendered on the screen by the cathode ray tube. We've talked about this a little bit before, but that's what really makes a video game. A video game has to have a video signal transmitted to a cathode ray tube to create a rasterized image on a television screen. If you're being, if you're being very technical. Now, Nobody considers video games to only be games that use this form of analog video signal anymore because nobody plays quote-unquote video games that use an analog video signal anymore. Because HDMI, that's not an analog video signal. It's digital. There's no cathode ray tube being controlled. It's not a rasterized image. Yeah, that's not how HD televisions work. Mm -hmm. It's not how LCD screens work. That's not how anything works anymore. So once we got away from cathode ray tubes and monitors, by the technical definition, we were no longer playing video games. Exactly. Now, obviously, the technical definition is not what it means anymore. The definition has grown. But it's important for these patent lawsuits mm -hmm. that this is specifically about a video signal being decoded by a television. Not a monitor, too, I might want to point out there, because I think even then you had computer monitors, but they aren't technically televisions. So you had a couple different things going on. You did have computers that had displays back then, mm -hmm. but those were essentially all point plotting or vector displays. We talked about this a little bit in previous episodes as well. So it's not creating a rasterized image. Mm -hmm. It's just point to point kind of stuff. It's vector scan because it's a vector. You pick a point and then you pick a direction and yeah, then it draws in that direction. Right. Until it is told to then deflect in another direction, another direction. So you can create outlines 
but it's not a rasterized image. That is, it is not drawing every single last individual pixel on the screen. Rasterized technology, there were sometimes kind of rasterized monitors used, I think, but the idea of a monitor basically didn't exist back then, outside of these vector scan things used on some of these high-end computers. There was not such a thing as a raster monitor. Airports had them. Mm -hmm. The whole departure and arrival screens. The old style ones, the ones that are sort of like pixelated? Mm -hmm, sure. Those were monitors. Essentially, the difference between a raster monitor and a television is that a television has a receiver and a monitor doesn't. Hmm. You know, for receiving, you know, a TV signal. Right. However, that done be cable over the air. So back then, there were no civilian commercial uses for monitors. People didn't have computers. Everything was just televisions. There were very few companies making monitors. So all the early arcade games, if you're talking about a Pong or a computer space and all of that stuff, those were made using standard televisions that were modified by having that TV receiver yanked out of it. Mm -hmm. So the companies were essentially making their own monitors. It was only later when the arcade industry became big and when home computers started coming in, that you actually had a monitor industry. In the early 1970s, there was no such thing. You had Motorola made a few monitors, a couple other companies may have, but it was only for very specific, highly specialized things like airports. Mm -hmm. The television part of it is very key. There had been games before, like Space War, that were rendered graphically, mm -hmm. but they were not accepting a video signal, and they were not using hardware that was designed to interface with a standard television set. And for those who don't remember, what kind of video signal was it sending if it wasn't sending that kind? How am I getting a picture from the computer to the monitor? Vector. Vector. Point plotting or vector. Yeah. Usually by a ray gun that says, here's a point start, and that's why we have the whole line art thing. Right. You're still talking about a cathode ray tube, obviously, but you're talking about a different way of using that cathode ray tube. Because with something like Bayer's system, and again, I'm not a technical guy, so I could be getting things wrong on the margins, but... You're basically talking about the system creates a special broadcast specifically mm -hmm. for the television. It's almost like a new television channel that is just only available locally being beamed by your system because you're actually, you have an RF frequency modulator that is sending this video signal at a frequency that the television is able to pick up. And then you're basically on these older, oldest systems hooking your video game system directly into your antenna ports. So it's like it's beaming that signal to the television. It's just that it's not going over the air. It's going directly wired from your system into the television. So it's, it's very TV-like, but it's localized. Sort of like any people who've had a RF transmitter in order to get something from your phone or some other device into your car. Might be a little bit uh, older technology for people who are a bit younger than us, but the technology does exist for low-level local transmission of radio signals that overpower whatever the other ones are because the signal is so close and localized. 
I used to have in one of my cars an RF modulator that would override anything coming into the radio when I turned it on. And you couldn't actually hear much anything else out of the radio, but it then let me take two RCA cables, plug it into my car, and then I could have that go to a 3.5 millimeter jack to plug into my phone mm -hmm. or a CD player. Yeah, interesting. And right, this is the same kind of thing. It's basically you have a local signal that is overriding. So instead of channel three All being... channels. Right, but I'm just talking about in the case of the, the Odyssey. Instead of channel three being that signal that's coming over the air, instead, channel three is taking the signal from the RF modulator connected to this video game system. Right, and even if there was a channel three, the signal is so strong compared to whatever the over-the-air channel three is, it doesn't matter. It's going to override it. Exactly. So that's how all of these old systems worked, and that's what this 480 patent is. Now, that patent comes up in a couple of the suits, but it's not really the key patent. The key patent is that 507 patent. And this is not actually assigned to Bear. This one's assigned to Bill Rush. Mm -hmm. We talked about this a little bit in the last episode. We talked about how very briefly Bill Rush had put in some velocity circuitry into the system that they didn't really end up using in the final product, where when the ball spot hit the paddle spot, it could go off at a different speed in a different direction than when it came in. Mm -hmm. This was developed by the team. It wasn't actually used in the final product, but it was patented. Hmm. So the patent there, even though they didn't take advantage of it. Right. Because obviously there is collision detection. It goes back and forth, but it's not going off at a, at a completely unpredictable vector. I mean, there's still vestiges of that are still in there because it still does move back once it collides. It's just that it's not nearly as complex as the original. But Bill Rush is the guy that worked out kind of all of this stuff. He's the one that said, let's put a third machine-controlled dot in there, and let's have that be batted around by the players. Even though he had it be more complicated and ended up being simplified for the final version, he had that idea. That idea was patented. And so this 507 patent is the key one. And so I'm going to quote again from the abstract of this patent. Okay. It says, apparatus and methods are herein disclosed for using injunction with a standard monochrome and color television receivers for the generation, display, and manipulation of symbols or geometric figures upon the screen of the television receivers for the purpose of playing games. That's very similar to the 480 patent that we already discussed. Mm -hmm. The invention comprises in one embodiment a control unit connecting means and in some applications a television screen overlay mask utilized in conjunction with a standard television receiver. So that's the whole idea that you have overlays on the screen and you have this frequency modulation going on, beaming this video signal in. The control unit includes the control means, which is an electronic circuitry for the generation, manipulation, and control of video signals, very key again, video signals, which are to be displayed on the television screen. The symbols are generated by developing current pulses proportional to predetermined portions or slices of horizontal and vertical sawtooth waves. So it's manipulating the, the tube with... The actual signal, and the mm -hmm. sawtooth is a certain kind of electrical wave that you could see on, say, an oscilloscope. Mm -hmm. An oscilloscope. Exactly. The connecting means couples the video signals to the receiver antenna terminals, thereby using existing electronic circuits 
within the receiver to process and display the signals. So again, it's about having this plugged right in. An overlay mask, which may be removably attached to the television screen, may determine the nature of the game to be played. Control units may be provided for each of the participants. Alternatively, games may be carried out in conjunction with background and other pictorial information originated in the television receiver by commercial TV, closed circuit TV, or a CATV station. Hmm. And so that's kind of the basic laying out again, just like the 480 patent of that video game apparatus. But then kind of the key part here, which is not part of that abstract, is when the 507 patent describes, and here's another quote, discloses a movable hitting spot, which is controlled by the player, and which, by striking a hit spot, can change the direction of that hit spot. Hmm. So anything that collides bounces off in a different direction, like Pong. Exactly. That is kind of the key piece of information about all these patent suits. A lot of people that don't look at this too closely think that kind of the basis for these suits is the fact that all of these early companies are doing table tennis games. And the Odyssey had a table tennis game. And it's not about that. It's not about saying, we made a table tennis game, and then all of these people made table tennis games, and we've already done a table tennis game. Because table tennis, that's a pretty common idea. I mean, that's a pre-existing game. It's not a great leap of logic to decide to do something like that. Mm-hmm. But it's not about the idea. It's not about the idea of doing a video game. It's not even about the idea of doing a table tennis game. It's about the technology. Bill Rush and Ralph Baer were the first people to conceive of and build a system in which a person manipulates an object on a television screen and the hardware manipulates an object on a television screen. Mm -hmm. And when these two things come together, there is not only collision detection in that the hardware realizes that the two objects have hit each other, but that that machine-controlled symbol moves then on a different vector. Hmm. That is the heart of all of these lawsuits. So we wouldn't technically have a lawsuit if they... I have something where my projectile or symbol or whatever hits an object and then stops and nothing happens. That's right, because that's not what they patented. Now, if they had decided to patent something like that, then they could have still had a lawsuit revolving around that. But that's not what they patented. What they patented was this idea of the spots colliding and then one of them moving in a different direction, because they felt that was a unique enough thing that no one had thought of before that was worthy of protecting via patent. Okay, I can see some potential abuse of that going down the line. (laughs) It's a broad kind of thing in a way. Whether it's too broad, I don't know. I'm not a patent attorney, but we can at least walk through kind of what happened. The Odyssey, as we discussed in our last episode, was completed in 1972. And after it was formally announced in May, it was taken on tour so that the Magnavox dealers and vendors and whatnot could get a feel for it, along with the rest of the 
Magnavox 1972 product line. Mm-hmm. On May 24th, 1972, the Magnavox Profit Caravan, which is what they called their tour with their products, came to Burlingame, California, which is in Silicon Valley. Through some way, somehow, don't know exactly how, Nutting Associates, where Nolan Bushnell still worked at this time, learned that this device was going to be showcased at this profit caravan in Burlingame. Interesting. Rod Guyman, the executive vice president of the company, and Nolan Bushnell, along with a third guy that was doing some distribution for Nutting, went to this event. Nolan Bushnell actually denied this in interviews for years. He doesn't anymore. He denies ever having seen the Odyssey before they did Pong. One problem. There was a guest book. Oh. It might have a name in it. Nolan Bushnell signed the guest book, as did Rod Guyman and as did the third guy that came. Yeah, that's pretty, for lack of a better term, damning evidence. So we know they were there. And Nolan, these days, does admit he was there, too. Mm -hmm. But way back in the day, he used to not admit that. So Nolan Bushnell saw the table tennis game on the Odyssey. That's what was demoed there. And what happened is when they formed Atari, which is its own episode that we may do someday, so we won't go into the details. They knew they were going to be doing a video game for Bally, contracting, because initially Atari was not planning to manufacture its own games. It planned only be a developer and then license its ideas to manufacturers. They knew they were doing a video game for Bally. They had that deal in place. And they had hired Al Alcorn to do that game. But Nolan wanted Al to have kind of a crash course in doing video game design, because even though Al Alcorn was a fairly accomplished video engineer, this is a very different kind of thing. It's the kind of thing people weren't doing, obviously, back then. And so he wanted to give him a simpler, smaller test project just to get him to learn what he was doing. So he lied to Al, and they both admitted this. I mean, this is it's, it's, it's a funny kind of lie, not a malicious kind of lie. He lied to Al and told him that they had a contract with General Electric to create a consumer video game or hmm. play on a television, and that this was going to be a table tennis game. And he lied to him to say that there was a real contract for it because he wanted Al to put his best effort forward. He figured that if he told Al it was just a little test project, then Al wouldn't Put he all wouldn't of his put effort the effort into it. in. He wouldn't make something that could really showcase the capabilities. Right. And he wouldn't really learn what he was doing. He basically was like, I saw this Odyssey game, and Bushnell has always said that he didn't think it was a very impressive game. And I think that's true. I mean, obviously, he is trying to downplay the Odyssey and what it did because he's trying to build up his own legacy as a founder of the video game industry. But the fact of the matter is, is that the Odyssey was not that impressive a system. So I don't think that that's really lying to say that he didn't think it was that impressive. They had no plans to create a table tennis game like that as their video game for Bally. But 
it seemed like a good test project because it looked very simple. Mm -hmm. So basically he had Al Alcorn recreate the Odyssey table tennis game. And he didn't tell Al that he had seen this game. He And Al never saw it. Al was not at this event. So Al didn't know that he was copying something that already kind of existed. So it was sort of kind of like a clean room? Yeah, really. I mean, obviously this was before the whole concept even of clean room had come into existence. But yeah, I mean, it's even more innocent than a clean room because, of course, in, in a clean room situation, what you do is you have one guy that figures out all the features of something. And then that guy says, it would be great if you would create something that had this feature, this feature, this feature, this feature, and this feature. And then those guys create something that have all of those features mm. without ever seeing the, uh, the original thing. I think that is the most distinct way I have ever heard a clean room described. <laughs> right. And so this was even more innocent than that in a way, because even though Nolan gave a couple of parameters to Al, he didn't spell out an entire system he wanted in place. It was, it was much vaguer than that. So yeah, clean room-like, but even, even more innocent in a way. Long story short, because it's really its own podcast or whatever, Al Alcorn ends up creating a game that is far more sophisticated than the Odyssey game and is much more interesting. And they decide that it's actually a kind of cool game. And so they being Nolan and Ted Dabney as co-founder. And so they decide, well, I guess we will release this as our first video game. It turns out that they did essentially copy the Odyssey. And so there's a lot of confusion where people think that, well, that's why they got in trouble. It's like, no, that's not why they got in trouble. Because even though they had similarities, they also had a lot of differences. And believe me, there have been video game lawsuits since then where one company sued another company for making a game that was they felt was too similar to their intellectual property. And almost every time, those companies have lost. Because even when the games are super similar to each other, as long as there are some distinct differences to them, it's not considered a copy. It's very similar to the whole look and feel thing that went on between Apple and Microsoft over Mac OS and Windows, where Apple tried to argue that Microsoft copied the quote-unquote look and feel because the layouts were similar and the icons were similar and they were in similar places on the screen. And that means even though no source code was copied, they still stole it. And that never worked, obviously. Mm -hmm. Windows was not shut down because of some look and feel nonsense. So that's not the reason they got in trouble. The reason they got in trouble is, be, again, because of that basic technological idea. The distinct patent. It is specifically that patent where you have an object that comes in, it collides with another object, and then bounces off somewhere else. That's right. So it could have been a completely different kind of game. It could have been Breakout. I mean, Breakout wasn't invented at this point, obviously. Breakout needed more sophisticated hardware. It didn't come along until 1976. But it could have been Breakout, which still has a ball and still has a paddle, but has a very different gameplay mechanic to a table tennis game. Or you could have something that's replicating, say, racquetball. Mm -hmm, exactly. And you would have the same problem because it's not because they stole the idea of doing table tennis. It's because 
they did the same stuff that Ralph Baer and Bill Rush had done first in terms of the technology. So Atari releases Pong, November 1972, though it really doesn't get national distribution until March 1973. 73 is the year of Pong. Pong is so huge in the arcades that just about everybody who's anybody in the arcade industry copies them. Bally releases a ball and paddle game, which is actually licensed from Atari. That one's actually not a knockoff. They actually licensed it. And they released it through Midway, which is their subsidiary. Chicago Coin makes a ping pong game. Williams Electronics makes a ping pong game. In Japan, Sega and Taito, the two big companies, make ping pong games. A bunch of smaller companies make ping pong games. Everyone is making these ping pong games. There are like 70,000 or so of them sold in 1973. That's a good number. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge, huge thing. Sanders and Magnavox take notice of this. As we discussed in 1971, Sanders, Ralph Baer's defense contractor, makes a deal with Magnavox to be the sole licensee and manufacturer and retailer of the system. They also license the patents to them. Mm -hmm. Magnavox is the company that actually has control of the patents. And Sanders still gets revenue out of this because they have licensed the patents to Magnavox. So there is licensing revenue from those patents that then flows back to Sanders. Sanders gets paid too. But the entity that actually has control of these patents now is Magnavox. So it's up to Magnavox to sue if they want to. And so they take some time just evaluating the market because there's no point in suing just to sue. The only point in suing would be if they can get some advantage to it, financially speaking. So they wait a little while and they watch through 1973 and they see who's making systems, these ping pong systems, and how much money they're making. Then in 1974, they strike. So this is another one of those areas where Ralph Baer has kind of inadvertently and not trying to at all kind of distorted the record. In his book, Ralph Baer says that the lawsuits began in 1976, and he says that Sanders really had to apply pressure to Magnavox to get them to sue, that it seemed like Magnavox didn't have any interest in suing until Sanders applied pressure or something. All of that is incorrect. The lawsuit started in 1974. April 1974 is when the very first lawsuit was filed, and we know that because it was reported in the press at the time. The Wall Street Journal reported it. That trade publication we talked about last time, Weekly Television Digest with Consumer Electronics, reported it. No doubt other outlets reported it as well. So we and because know. it's a suit, wouldn't it be in the public record? Oh, yeah, sure. But that kind of stuff can often be hard to dig up. Things like complaints and answers and whatnot are not necessarily readily available. You have to go to the courthouse and basically dig through a bunch of crud. Hmm. And there doesn't seem to be any evidence that Magnavox was reluctant to sue either, because I also found an article, and I forget what publication it was in. It wasn't in Weekly Television Digest, I don't think, but I found uh, an article from 1973 where this idea of these Pong games infringing upon the Magnavox patents was discussed, and that article said that Magnavox was considering suing people. So even in 1973, Magnavox was at least mulling their options. 
So again, Bear is is just misremembering on that. And I think he's misremembering on that one because I don't think any testimony was taken, any depositions were done until 1976. This was kind of a long, slow-burning thing. Obviously, Bear testified for all of these suits on what he invented and how he invented and what he patented and why he patented and all of that. So he was involved very intimately in the lawsuits, but his involvement didn't start until 76. So therefore, logically, in his mind, he would think that the actual suing process, especially if you're from the layperson viewpoint, where you would think, okay, I'm going to sue someone. I walk down to the court. I slap down my money. I have this person in court within a month. Right. I think that's probably where the confusion comes from, is that his participation began in 1976. But the suits were filed in 1974. This first lawsuit was against five companies. Atari. Mm-hmm. Raiders of Pong. Makes sense. Bally, which licensed Pong from Atari and released its own version, Winner, under its Midway subsidiary. Empire Distributing, which was one of the largest distributors of coin-operated amusement equipment in the country at that time, and was also actually a Bally subsidiary. So Bally's kind of in there twice. (laughs) Chicago Dynamic Industries, which is the company that released arcade games under the Chicago Coin name. Chicago Coin was kind of the fourth largest of four. There were only four really important coin-op manufacturers by this period of time, and Chicago Coin was the least of them. But they released a couple of Pong clones that did really well, some ball and paddle games, so they were in the suit. And then the final one was Allied Leisure, which was a Florida-based company that was relatively recent. It was established in 1968, and they had the distinction of creating what was probably the best-selling of all of the Pong games. Because Atari originated the concept, but Atari didn't have great manufacturing capacity in its early days. So they were quickly overshadowed by bigger companies that had more effective manufacturing. And Allied Leisure was the first company of any size to create a Pong clone. So they beat Bally to market. They beat Williams to market. They beat these other big companies to market. And they had better manufacturing capability than Atari. So they churned out a lot of units of their paddle battle Pong clone. They probably sold more Pong-style games than any of these other companies. So they were in there as the uh, fifth company. So it was Atari, Bally, Empire Distributing, Chicago Dynamic Industries, and Allied Leisure. At some point, and I don't know when, Seaberg Corporation was also added to this lawsuit. And Seaberg Corporation is a jukebox company, and it was the parent company of Williams at that time. Hmm. So that covers all the big companies that released Pong games. There were other companies that released them, but they were smaller. Not worth the effort to sue. Faced with this lawsuit, the companies in question here came up with a few different legal arguments for why they thought they were not violating these patents, the 480 and the 507 patent. There are a couple of ways you can go about invalidating a patent. And I'm not a patent attorney, so again, you know, some of the legal specifics I have to give a disclaimer on. But one of the things you can do is you can argue that the patented thing was kind of intuitively obvious. 
based on what was out there at the time and what was available at the time, just about anybody could have figured out the next logical thing to do was to do thing X. And therefore, it's not patentable because the idea of a patent is that somebody has a unique idea that no one has thought of before and no one was likely to think of, and they get to have an opportunity to profit from their unique idea before everybody and his brother gets to get in on the fun. Mm -hmm. So one thing that they argued is that there had been other table tennis type games before even the Odyssey. And therefore, it really wasn't much of a leap. I mean, it had already been done on this kind of system. And so deciding, aha, I can also do it on this kind of system. It's just not a stretch. Right. I imagine I don't have the arguments. Those are the kind of court documents that aren't out there. I don't have opening, closing statements and whatnot to see exactly what they argued. But I assume that they based this defense largely on the game Tennis for Two. Tennis for Two was created in 1958. It Which was way predates anything in the 70s. That's right. Or 60s, because remember, it was released in 1972, but it was designed between 1966 and 1969. But yeah, 1958 is obviously well before that as well. It was created by a physicist named Willie Higginbotham at the Brookhaven National Laboratory in New York. Basically, it's a pretty well-known story, so I'll just kind of cover it very briefly. Brookhaven had annual visitors' days where they had the public come in. This was a lab that was dedicated to discovering peaceful uses for atomic energy. And so they would bring the public in at, at annual open houses to kind of see their equipment and see what they're doing and all of that. Higginbotham decided that it seemed like the public often wasn't very interested in the displays that they had, which were all very static and not very engaging. And so he came up with the idea of Let's give them something fun to do. Even if it's not really related to our research, let's just give them something fun to do. And so he was looking through the manual for an analog computer that they had and discovered that that computer could generate on an oscilloscope a uh, ball with a trajectory line, and you could model gravity and wind resistance and all this other stuff. It was just this kind of simple thing. And so he saw that and was like, aha. Tennis. That seems like tennis. Hmm. And so he created this tennis for two. It's very primitive get graphics. It's not top down. You know, Pong and table tennis and all that are essentially top down if you wanted to assign a view to it. Obviously, it's very abstract, but it's like you're looking down on a table tennis match. This was a side view, so it was a little different perspective. So you had a line in the middle of the screen. And that was your net. And then you had the ball arcing back and forth over that line, like you're watching a tennis match from the stands as opposed to from a blimp. There were no paddles or anything on the screen. Basically, when the ball comes over to your side of the net, you have a knob and a button, and the knob kind of chooses the angle of your hit, and then you press the button to do your hit. But your avatar isn't represented on the screen. It's just the ball's on your side of the net. And then when you press the button, the ball is deflected to the other side and so on and so forth and goes back and forth. He displayed this for two years, 1958 and 1959 at the open houses, and then it was dismantled. But he kept records of it and people kind of knew it was out there. He didn't file a patent. So I don't know exactly how they discovered it, but these lawyers are high-powered lawyers. They're very thorough. 
Mm. So they found it. And I imagine that was the basis for the intuitively obvious. It's like, yeah, the defense. Yeah. Tennis games already existed. It's not a big step to take a tennis game on a computer with an oscilloscope and then do it on a television. On a television. And for all I know, they were even looking more broadly because it may not have even been about the table tennis idea specifically. They could have pointed to the other games and said there were other computer games. These computer games use a display and it's intuitively obvious so you could do this on a television too. That was kind of that argument. And that didn't fly. The judge in the case decided that it was different enough that it was unique enough, this idea of having an RF modulator and tying into the antennas on a television, and specifically playing on a television with a video signal, was very different than just interfacing an oscilloscope with an analog computer or interfacing a point-plotting display with a mini-computer. So much for that. The other thing is to claim prior art. Basically, if you can show that something else existed prior to your invention that anticipated all aspects, all the important aspects of your invention, then again, your idea is not really a unique idea because somebody got there first. Even if they didn't patent it, someone got there first. Right. And so the idea of a patent is that if you have a unique idea, you have the right to exploit that before all others. If your idea isn't unique to you, if you aren't the first one to come up with it, then even if you're the first one to quote-unquote patent it, you don't have the right to exploit it because you weren't first there. You have to be first. So that was the other big thing. And this is, this is the big one because there were so many games. There was Space War in 1961, two spaceships shooting at each other. There were a bunch of even more obscure things that people don't know about today. There was a pool game created on a computer at the University of Michigan all the way back in 1954. It's probably the first game that ever had real-time graphics, graphics that updated in real time, in which you played pool. You had the 15 balls, and you had the pool table. It was not rendered electronically. You actually had to draw the table on an overlay because it didn't have the graphical power to show it, but it did know where the holes were. So if a ball hit a spot with a hole... That ball did disappear because even though it wasn't drawn... And the balls could collide and interact with each other. They did. So they that had, at least gets it from that standpoint mm-hmm. of an object hit another object and it went off in a different direction. Exactly. So it had, it had the physics uh, built into that there. There was another pool game that was created by a guy in the 1960s. There was some training stuff that the Germans had done in 1960. There was a baseball game done in 1967 that was actually not very on point because it didn't involve vectors. It was very abstract. There were lines on the screen that represented quadrants, and you would kind of guess the pitcher would choose one of these quadrants to pitch the ball in, and then the batter would try to guess which quadrant that he was pitching the ball in. So it's it's not like there were little stick baseball figures on the screen. And that the ball was hitting a bat and then going off, you know. It was far different from that, but that was another one that was found. They found all, and that was done in 1967. They found all of these prior things, and of course, Tennis for Two that we already talked about. All this stuff was dug up. All the people that created these things were deposed. Willie Higginbotham was deposed. 
uh, William Brown and Ted Lewis, who did this pool game in 1954, were deposed. Christopher Spence, who did this baseball game in 1967, was deposed. Everybody was deposed because they were trying to prove that these people had done these things first. Problem was, it was not with a television. It was not with a video signal. It's all either an oscilloscope or... Or a point-plotting slash vector display. vector display, not a television. Exactly. The judge found that none of that was prior art that was relevant because they were not video games. There's no video signal, therefore, by the technical definition, like now, there's no video game. And so, as far as the judge was concerned, that was the unique idea. The unique idea was not just one object collides with another and goes off on a different vector. Though you needed that. You needed that element. But it wasn't just that element. It was the fact that all of this was done with a video signal. And a lot of patents and inventions are not just hey, I came up with a neat idea, is that I came up with a unique idea that can improve on something else. Mm-hmm. There's a Simpsons episode that sort of delves into this a little bit, where Homer tries to emulate Thomas Edison. He puts another set of chair legs on the back of his uh, chair so that when he tips his chair backwards, when he's thinking, he doesn't fall backward and finds out, Simpson did it first. That's right. <laughs> Simpsons did it. Samson's did it. Samson's did it. Little South Park reference for you kids. That's right. All of these patent attorneys, this is the fascinating thing. There's there so many lawsuits that we're going to talk about. Every single time, there were a few companies, and we'll get into that as well. There were a few companies that just took a license because it's not like Magnavox was trying to stop anyone else from releasing a video game. They just wanted to be Do paid compensation. a uh, Yeah, they just won compensation in the form of a licensing fee and royalties. There will be a few companies over the years that just up and license, that just pay for a license. It's probably cheaper that way. But almost every single company that they ever talk to fights them in court. Sometimes they settle. Sometimes they let it go all the way to a judgment, but they always lose. But even though they always lose, every time there's another lawsuit, the next set of lawyers try again. And that's what I find fascinating. You have a lot of companies that have very good attorneys. I mean, Nintendo is one of these companies. We'll get to them. Nintendo is one of the companies that initially... And they were legendary for being very litigious and very good at it. Right. And so they have the best patent attorneys on the planet. Aldo Test is their one of their main lawyers, and he's like one of the legendary patent attorneys. I mean, these are guys that know this stuff. They live, breathe, are. And they always keep fighting it because they are convinced either that the earlier stuff should count, Space War, Tennis for Two, Midsack Pool, etc., or that their technology is different than the technology found in the Odyssey. And therefore, by virtue of that, they have created something different. They have improved upon that initial thing, and they have something very different. That's always what it comes down to. And they all lose, or they settle mm-hmm. before they have a chance to lose, because the courts don't see it that way, which I just find is very interesting. So in this first round of suits, or this first suit, I shouldn't say first round of suits, because all the defendants are combined. So I mean, this first suit 
which later gets a couple more people in. Sears is added at some point because Atari, when they go to the home for the first time and release Home Pong, they go exclusively through Sears, which markets it as the telegame system. So Sears gets added. Seaberg, like I said, gets added at some point. So in this first suit, you do have a couple of companies drop out. Atari actually does end up settling. The reason for that, basically, is they think they're going to win. But in 1976, they're in the process of trying to sell the company to Warner Communications. And the last thing that a corporation wants to see in a company that they're about ready to acquire is pending litigation. We do not want to buy a company where we have to take on their legal responsibilities. Right. So having this lawsuit with Magnavox could have scuttled the whole deal. And they needed that deal. They needed an influx of capital to finish what became the Atari VCS. So they had to get a deal done. They really couldn't have a lawsuit hanging over their heads while they're trying to get a deal done. Atari actually decides to settle in June of 1976. And here's another area that Nolan Bushnell has always been very cavalier and dismissive and kind of distorts the truth a little bit. He always said that it was junk settlement, $700,000 up front, and that was it, Mm -hmm. which is not much. Completely not true. And we know that because since Nolan made those statements, the actual settlement documents have come to light. Oh, dear. So researchers now have access to the actual settlement itself. It was actually $1.5 million. A little over twice the amount. Exactly, and it was paid in a couple of installments. And then the other thing was that they had, Magnavox got the rights to anything that Atari developed over the next year. Oh, my. Any, uh, yeah, any new technology. It's not in any way an accident that the Atari VCS was first publicly unveiled at the June 1977 CES. We do not want Magnavox to have their grubby little paws on my VCS. That's right. They probably could have released it in 1976 if they had wanted to, I I would imagine, or had it ready to go in early 1977 or whatever. But there was no way that they were going to admit that they had that when they were under the specter of that settlement. Wow. Yeah. It was still, they still got off fairly lightly, all things considered, but it was, it was not the junk settlement that Nolan used to make it out to be. Bally also ends up settling. I'm not sure exactly when that happened, but at some point, Bally also settles which knocks them out of the suit, and it also knocks Empire Distributing out of the suit because Empire is a subsidiary of Bally. Right. So that leaves Seaberg, Chicago, Dynamic Industries, and Allied Leisure. Allied Leisure ends up being carved out of this suit as well. I don't know the exact details of it, but in December 1976, Magnavox starts another suit down in Florida with Allied Leisure and with Tandy, Radio Shack. I don't know the details there. It might have been a venue thing. Allied Leisure may have successfully argued that since they're in Florida, because they were a Florida company, that they shouldn't be sued in Chicago. So maybe they got dropped from the suit that way. I don't know. But the point is, Allied Leisure ends up becoming a separate suit. So the final court case is just against Seberg and Chicago Dynamic Industries. They're the last ones standing. They continue to fight this thing to the bitter end. And in January 1977, they lose. 
They get a settlement against them. And this is what I was talking about before, where they argued the prior art thing. They argued the intuitively obvious. And the judge just didn't buy it. Nope. Because he decided that it was significant that this was a video signal in a video game. He even went so far as to call the 480 patent the pioneering patent in the field, which means that legally speaking, not technically speaking, not historically speaking, just legally speaking, Ralph Baer's technology was the first video game. Hmm. Thus has the court decreed. Pretty much. <laughs> but it's really that 507 patent that has the teeth. I mean, he declares this 480 patent the pioneering patent, but it's the 507 patent, which with its specific talk of symbols colliding and one going off on a different vector that really gets them because obviously they've all made ping pong games. They all have made games where or these two objects collide with another object. Try to think of any video game these days that doesn't have some object colliding with another object and something goes flying off in a different direction. Exactly. There's a lot of that going on. You would think that would be the end of it, absent any attempts at appeal and, and all of that stuff. You'd think that once this case was fully and formally settled, that that would be the end of it. But it's not. <laughs> and the reason for that is that technology keeps marching forward. So the very first companies that were sued were the arcade game companies, the companies that in 1973 all followed Atari's lead and released these ball and paddle games. Then in 1975, you had the beginning of that home console boom that we've talked about before with the dedicated Pong systems. Right. So now you have something that's even closer in some ways to what Magnavox did, because this is actually using a video games. Well, I mean, the arcade games use a video signal, too. Because those, are, like I said, those are real televisions. But it's something that you can have in the home. Exactly, and so that's a little more similar. But the thing is, it's not using the same technology because we talked last time. The Odyssey used that very primitive diode to transistor logic. It was digital, and you see another thing that these companies always tried to argue was that the Magnavox Odyssey was an analog system, and that they were all using digital technology. They were all using integrated circuits. Transistor to transistor logic, TTL instead of DTL. Because of this, they had made a substantial improvement and they were using a different method to create these games and therefore the patents don't apply. First of all, I mean, the initial technology isn't that much different because the Odyssey was a digital system too. But again, the court didn't buy that because they saw all of this as a natural evolution. It was the end result that was important. It's the fact that there's a video signal. It's the fact that this is happening on a television. And it's the fact that two objects are colliding and one goes off at a different vector. That's the important thing. It's not about the technology that's driving this process, the specific technology. Obviously, it has to be technology that creates these circumstances. Mm -hmm. But none of the courts ever cared whether that was diodes or transistors, or integrated circuits, or microprocessors, or what. They didn't care what the specific underlying technology was, so long as it was technology that produced the result as articulated in the patent. Which pretty much all of them did. Right, and that's why these lawsuits keep reoccurring. So the next round of lawsuits occurs in 
1977. In August 1977, Magnavox sues practically everybody that's involved in a substantial way in creating these dedicated consoles. Because there were, there were dozens of companies that created dedicated consoles. It was this real boom. And so in August 1977, they sue APF, Unisonic, a discount retailer called Jewel Companies, a mail-order wholesaler called Bennett Brothers, another distributor called JK, Taito America, which didn't have a home system, but they missed them in the first round of arcade lawsuits. So they throw them in here. Executive Games, which created a dedicated Pong system in 1975. Universal Research, which did both coin-op and homework and had a home Pong system. And Control Sales, which was the company selling Universal Research's game. You know what I I see here? What? A lawsuit for you, (laughs) and a lawsuit for you, and lawsuit for everybody! Pretty much. And I'm sure that there are other lawsuits that I never even noticed or or haven't realized they filed, because they're suing so many people. Like, National Semiconductor isn't mentioned here. I'm sure they must have sued National Semiconductor at some point, because National Semiconductor had a very successful home system. One company that they did not sue was Coleco. Coleco was the leading video game creator in the home during this period, and they did not get sued. And the reason for that is very interesting. When Coleco was putting its first system together, the Telstar ball and paddle system, which we've talked about before, they failed their FCC testing Hmm. the first time they submitted it. And they were able to get the FCC to let them submit it a week later, a second time. But if they didn't pass that time, it was going to be months before the FCC let them submit again because they have a they have a schedule. They have companies coming in all the time submitting stuff. That was going to completely destroy their release schedule. You know, that was going to blow their whole launch. So basically, they were desperate, and they went straight to Ralph Baer, the inventor of this stuff, to ask him if he could fix the problem for him because they had a pre-existing relationship because at this time, Ralph Baer was doing some consulting with toy companies on the side. So Arnold Greenberg at Coleco knew Ralph Baer, and it was actually Ralph Baer that told him about this GI chip and allowed Coleco to be the first company to put an order in and then the only company to get a full order that allowed them to then dominate the market in 1976. Coleco comes to Ralph Baer and is like, oh my God, you have to fix this for us. And I'm like, sure, we'll fix this for you, but there's a matter of that licensing agreement you haven't signed yet. Hmm. sign the licensing agreement, and I would be happy to take this back to my lab and sort this out. I believe some signatures rapidly appeared at this point. (laughs) Exactly. So I imagine that Coleco probably felt the same way as everybody else, that they didn't need to license because the GI Pong on a chip thing was a very different technology than what was in the Magnavox Odyssey. But they had to sign, or they might not have gotten their product released. It was kind of a unique situation. Right. So in May 1977, they actually became an official licensee. And the interesting thing, too, is all the European companies became licensees. There was a mini, it wasn't as big as in the U.S. because it's a smaller market, but there was a mini dedicated console boom in the United Kingdom and continental Europe at the same time. All of them signed. Interton Hmm. was the big company in Germany. They signed. Videomaster was the big company in the U.K. They signed. I don't know why those companies were less litigious. 
And the Japanese companies all signed too. Epoch, which is a toy company in Japan, was the first company in Japan to release a home video game system. It was a dedicated Pong system they released in 1975. And they licensed the technology from Magnavox in 1975 to do that. Nintendo. Later on with the NES, they're going to fight it. But when Nintendo released its first dedicated system in 1977, they actually licensed the technology oh, from really? Magnavox. So the international companies were playing ball, pun kind of intended, I guess. <laughs> but it was just these American companies that really uh, resisted at every step. And I don't know exactly the details of this August 1977 suit. It's not a well-publicized one because it's not that important. But the end result is definitely that they all settled or lost because Magnavox was unbeaten. <laughs> in their quest for licensing royalty. The thing is, once you win once... It's really, really easy to win again and really, really hard to lose because you have this thing called precedent. Right, and specifically in patent law, you have this thing called the doctrine of equivalence. Basically, what the doctrine of equivalence is, if you have two different devices... And the differences between them are insubstantial. That's, that's the test. If they're insubstantial, then the other device also violates the patent. Virtually no questions asked. I mean, it's, you know, basically if company A copies you and company B copies you, and even if they copied you slightly differently, but it's the same kind of copying, then you're screwed. You know, I mean, so... Since the first round of companies had already been found to infringe and the technology in the first round of home systems wasn't that much different from what was going on in the arcade, it's all TTL hardware, dedicated stuff, that's open and shut, really. Mm -hmm. So I don't know exactly what the fate of all these companies were in the suits, but they would have all settled or lost. Eventually. That brings us to the next major lawsuit. And that happened in 1980 when Magnavox sued Mattel. Mattel? Mm-hmm. The Intellivision. Of course. Here you have a slightly different situation. Everything that came before, whether it was in the home or it was in the arcade, was a dedicated system. It used TTL hardware to only play the games found in the hardware, or in the case of the original Magnavox Odyssey, the diode to transistor DTL hardware. Fairchild is sued at some point. I'm not exactly sure where, because Fairchild had the first programmable system. I know they were sued. It may have been the same suit as the Mattel case. Atari was never sued over the VCS programmable system because they already had a license. They'd mm. already settled. So Mattel and Fairchild were the first ones to, instead of having a dedicated system, having a programmable system. So this is completely different in terms of the underlying technology because you have a microprocessor in the control unit, and then you have a cartridge with a ROM chip in it, and that ROM chip has the game program housed in memory and then plugs directly into the CPU in the control unit in order to function. A little bit different. Very different technology. The microprocessor, I mean, technically the microprocessor is an integrated circuit too. It's just a really really, really dense integrated circuit with lots of transistors on it. But it's a very different kind of technology. 
So when Mattel is sued in 1980, they decide to fight again because they are convinced that there is no way now. The technology is different enough that a judge isn't going to call it the same. Right. And they do all the prior art stuff, too. Everyone that ever kind of fights these suits always tries to bring up that Space War did it first or Tennis for Two did it first. Everyone always brings up the prior art. The prior art never works. But this time, they're also arguing that their system is so different in the way it achieves its results that it can't possibly be covered under the patent. (laughs) Well, (laughs) courts don't see it that way. After a relatively short trial, the trial only lasts nine days. Goes to trial in 1982. The suit's filed in 1980, but then you have discovery and depositions and evidence being And all the delaying tactics they like to do. Right. So it goes to trial in 1982, and it's only a nine-day trial. And at the end of that nine days, the judge is like, no, no, this, this still infringes. Because in the judge's mind, it's the natural evolution of the method of doing this thing. So the key elements, as, as I said earlier in the podcast, you know, in the judge's mind were video signal, mm-hmm. symbols on the screen, mm-hmm. player-controlled symbol, machine-controlled symbol, collide, machine-controlled symbol goes off in a different direction. That's the important part. Whether it's a microprocessor or a TTL system or a DTL system, doesn't matter. Because the technology is going to naturally improve But the patent is not about the circuits. It's not about the how. Well, it is about the how. It's not how how you generate the signal. It's about the fact that there is a signal and you are getting this result. Exactly. And that's what he decides the important thing is. The judge rules once again in Magnavox's favor. And Mattel appeals. They hold arguments before the appellate court. Right before the court is getting ready to issue its decision, they settle. So the appellate court actually never issues an opinion in the case. Hmm. Because they reach a settlement at the 11th hour. Mattel agrees to pony up. Mattel obviously got the sense for whatever reason that the court was not going to rule in their favor. And that was that. So Mattel loses. Just as Williams did before them. Just as Chicago Coin did before them. Just as Atari did before them. I mean, they settled. They didn't, quote-unquote, lose at the higher level, but they did lose at the trial level. Another company falls in line, more licensing revenue for Sanders and And for Magnavox. It's almost like perpetual life support for Magnavox. They just survive on lawsuits. Well, yeah, I mean, they're, they're doing other things as well, obviously. And throughout most of this time, Magnavox is no longer an independent company, as we discussed in our previous episode, they were bought by Philips, so they were a division of North American Philips, which itself is a division of Philips Electronics in the Netherlands. Yeah, obviously, they're making decent money on licensing fees, and Sanders is making decent money on licensing fees. The Magnavox Odyssey doesn't sell that many units, doesn't Mm. make that much money as a video game system, but it made a lot of money. (laughs) As far as patents and licensing fees go. It it made, you know, tens of millions of dollars in revenue. Oh, my. So who's the next one up on the chopping block? Activision. Activision. Before they became Blizzard. 
That's right. And of course, we discussed some of this in our Mediagenic episodes. Activision is the next company in 1982 to bravely come along and assert that, no, we are different. And the reason for this is that they are the first third-party software developer. Hmm. So, as we discussed before, before Activision, the company that created the system created all the games for the system. There was no concept of a company making video games for a hardware that they themselves didn't create. Mm-hmm. Activision was the first one to fuck that. And so Activision was not making a hardware system. Activision was just making software mm-hmm. cartridges. The Magnavox Odyssey patents, as far as they were concerned, or the bear patents on the brown box, were about hardware systems mm. generating video signals that yeah. generated symbols. That collide. Yeah. Hardware systems, not software. So they figured they were in the clear because they didn't make hardware. So they fought. Mm -hmm. I mean, they did all the prior art stuff because everybody does the prior art stuff. They tried that again. What they also said is a couple of different things. First of all, they said ours is different because we're software. There's no hardware involved and the patents specifically cover hardware. The other thing that they said was that they created their games for the Atari system. Mm -hmm. The Atari system was licensed. Atari was a licensee. So the Atari system was legal. And what they were doing was only creating a repair or modification on top of the licensed system. Mm -hmm. Rather than creating their own new separate thing. So therefore, their part of the equation didn't need to be licensed under the patent because the VCS was licensed under the patent. I can see that. Well, the court can't. Oh. <laughs> so again, all of these get thrown out. And, and again, the idea, the judge didn't care that it was software interacting with hardware. That didn't matter. And it was different judge and different court this time. The first, many of the first cases were in Chicago, where all the coin-op companies were. This case was in California, where Activision was. So this judge, of course, relying in part on the prior decisions as well, said the same things everyone else did. There's a video signal. There are symbols. They collide. One goes off in a different direction. We don't care how that signal is created, be it hardware, be it software, be it Joe Schmo making software from across the street. That's right. The fact of the matter is this is happening. So no. Just because you're only making the software, the software-hardware combination is what creates the situation. So your software is part of this, and that infringes on the patents. The patents are not limited to pure hardware. So that's part one. And the other part is that it doesn't really count as a repair or modification, because an augmentation of that kind is something that changes it a little bit, but the underlying thing still functions. And, And in this case, the VCS does nothing without the software. And when the software, when the cartridge is plugged in, that software completely overrides whatever default thing is in the hardware. Not that the Atari VCS had built-in games, but some systems like the Fairchild system did have built-in games. But if you put the cartridge in, that's overriding what's built into the system. So it's like, no, it's not a repair or a modification. It completely alters the original object into something else. Hmm. It's not an extension. So they didn't buy that argument either. Activision, as we discussed in our Mediagenic episode, then appeals. A lot. And this was a bad decision. The case was decided in 1985. They appeal. 
the case isn't decided again until 1988, mm-hmm. three years of legal fees and all of this, and and then they keep trying and trying to appeal the judgment. They, you know, first they try to appeal the judgment, that doesn't work. Then I think they try to appeal the damages, and that doesn't work. And as we talked about, Phillips really puts the screws to Activision, and Bruce Davis thinks it's because they're proceeding against Nintendo and want to crucify somebody because I'm sure they were very wary about Nintendo as a court adversary, even Mm -hmm. though they knew that they were on pretty solid footing because they'd won all their other cases. But you don't want to drag the thing out because it still bleeds money. The only people who win in lawsuits are the lawyers. That's right. You know, this lawsuit spells the end of Activision, spells the end of the original incarnation of Activision, as we discussed in our Mediagenic episodes. So, you know, this is probably in terms of the impact of the lawsuit Of all the Magnavox lawsuits, this is the one that has the greatest impact because it's the only one that just causes a company to... Belly up. (laughs) Exactly. Even though Activision was pretty wounded by that point anyway. Well, sure. As we discussed, there were many causes of the downfall of Activision, but the final straw that broke the camel's back and brought them from we're not doing very well to, oh my gosh, we're in bankruptcy right now, Mm -hmm. was the lawsuit and the $10 million that they had to pay. Though the one thing that they got off on is that Magnavox did try to allege that their violation of the patent was willful. That is, they were made aware of the patent, they were made aware that they were violating the patent, and they decided to violate the patent anyway. Hmm. That would be a willful violation. And the court did rule that when Activision was first formed in 1979 that they had a patent attorney do a patent search for them, which is customary when founding a new company that deals in technology that may be patented. The patent attorney that did the patent search did not inform them about this patent and inform them that they could be violating that patent, which, you know, poor job on that guy's part. (laughs) But the point is, because their counsel did not advise them, they did their due diligence by doing a patent search. And because their attorney did not advise them of the patent, they were not willfully infringing. So that would have made the damages even worse if they had found to be willful violators. So they got off on that. But all the other stuff, same as everybody down. else. And, and again, it's that thing. And of course, in their case, they never made a ping pong game. Just like Mattel never made a ping pong game. And, and that, again, is the important thing to remember that oftentimes when people discuss this, they assume that the reason that Atari got sued and Atari had to settle and all those other companies got sued and lost is because Magnavox made a ping pong game and then all of these companies copied the ping pong game. It's not about the ping pong because these later companies that got in after the ball and paddle craze never did that. But you see, Activision had an ice hockey game. You have an object hitting another object. Uh And it goes off in a different direction. Exactly. And Mattel had a baseball game yeah. that we discussed. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's not about table tennis. It, table tennis doesn't matter. I mean, it, it just so happens, and I'm sure that it made it even harder for Atari and those others to argue their case. It just so happens that Atari did borrow the idea of the Magnavox table tennis game, and then everyone else borrowed the table tennis idea from Atari. So in point of fact, everyone was copying the Magnavox Odyssey on that specific... Only in the first initial major round or two of major lawsuit here, but 
after that, when you're talking to about Mattel, you're talking about Activision. These are games that are made that go, I have an object. It hits another object. It goes in a different direction. And it's a video signal. That's the criteria. Mm-hmm. We don't care how that happens. It is kind of amazing. It's just the technicality of it is so simplistic yet insidious at the same time that it's drawing these patent lawyers who arguably should know better into this and and judges just keep going like check this check 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 you lose right and and the thing is the law i think the law was evolving a bit at the time and i don't know much about history pat patent law but kind of this there's this concept of means plus function in patent law and it, it means just what it says. Means, the way you do something, plus function, the something you are actually doing. There is an idea in patent law that if you do not duplicate both the means and the function, then you have not violated the patent. If you functionally get to the same result through a completely different method, you don't violate the patent. Part of it is that all of these companies assume that as their technology continued to evolve, it was so removed from the original technology in the Odyssey that they were no longer using the same means to achieve the function. Mm -hmm. The courts didn't see that. They saw it as fundamentally the same means because even though it's DTL to TTL to microprocessor... The software... Right. You're still talking about circuitry at some level. There's circuitry, there's electricity, it's yeah. creating a video system. There's logic gates. I mean, you know, you're still talking about the same fundamental technology. And so they decided to interpret means plus function very broadly. And all of these patent attorneys thought that they could get them to interpret means plus function much more narrowly. And they were always unsuccessful in that. Oh, dear. That's what lured them in. The final major adversary was Nintendo. Because she can't keep doing this forever and ever and ever. A patent today is valid for 20 years from the issue date. Back then, it was a little different. It was 17 years from issue date. Not much different, but a little different. Three years. The 507 patent that we've been talking about that has been the key patent that everyone's violated was issued in 1973. Okay. So, so. 1990 was the last year. You can still sue somebody past that date for past infringement of infringement that occurred during the time that the patent covered. But any product that comes out later than 17 years after the patent issued, that product's safe because the idea of patent laws, you're balancing the interest of the inventor being able to profit off of the invention with society being able to fully benefit from the invention by making it readily available. The idea is you give a window for the originator to make some money off of this idea, but then you let society just have it, you mm -hmm. know. 17 years after 1973 would be 1990. So after that, you're safe. So Nintendo was the last major company that came up on this. And Nintendo actually had a separate wrinkle. Mm -hmm. Because the NES came with a light gun. Hmm. No other system had ever come with a light gun before, except Magnavox Odyssey. Ooh. Now, that's not quite true, because I think there was a light gun peripheral on a couple of the Coleco systems as well. 
but Coleco was a licensee. Mm-hmm. So again, but nothing. You don't have any legal precedent. Nothing comes up. So Nintendo had been a licensee. Right. Because we said they got a license back in the 70s when they first made their own device. But they didn't feel they needed a license for the NES. Hmm. Because the NES is completely different again, technologically. Completely different, yet always the same. They were negotiating. They did kind of have this feeling that maybe they should do something, but they were still in negotiation. Then, you know, Sanders and Ralph Baer noticed they've also got a light gun, and they actually had a patent on that, too. Oh, On really? what they did with their light gun. Now, they didn't make the first light gun, but they did probably, I don't know this 100%, but theirs was probably the first light gun that interacted with a screen. Because mm-hmm. there were light guns going all the way back to the 1920s, but they were interacting with photosensitive vacuum tubes or photovoltaic cells. They weren't interacting with a television screen. So it's right. a little different. The Odyssey was probably the first time that there was an interaction with television screen. So Nintendo, while they're kind of negotiating on the 507 patent, ends up being slapped with this light gun thing as well. Oh, joy. And they're not happy about that. And so there is... A lawsuit. Nintendo is a very aggressive company. So in this case, Nintendo sues Magnavox. And this happened in a couple of the other patent suits as well. I didn't get into that because I don't want to get into the details. But, you know, Magnavox can sue people for violating their patents. But companies can also preemptively sue Magnavox, claiming that their patents are invalid, asking for a declaratory judgment by the court that the patent is invalid. Mm -hmm. So Nintendo, who has never been shy about using the legal system to its own benefit, Yeah, definitely. As we have gone over in our Nintendo episode, they were very litigious. Right. So Nintendo actually sues Magnavox and tries to get the court to declare that the Magnavox patents are invalid. In Nintendo's case, there was another patent on the whole TV gaming apparatus thing issued in 1975, the so-called 598 patent. Mm -hmm. And their defense, it, it was a very technical kind of thing to get them invalidated that Basically, there was substantial controversy between the 598 patent, which was issued later than the 507 patent, and that because of this, they should all be invalidated, and and the judge didn't buy that. And so Nintendo did end up settling and paying a licensing fee for the NES, just like everybody else before them. They had to go away meekly. So that was not a big case. The big three cases are kind of that first one in 77 that was decided in 77 mm-hmm. when Seaberg and Chicago Dynamic Industries had to pay up and Bally and Atari settled prior to the judgment. The Mattel case in 1980, which extended the coverage of the patents to include microprocessor-based systems as well as dedicated systems, and then that Activision case, which also extended the patents to cover makers of software only and not just hardware. So by the time it got to Nintendo, as big and mighty and powerful and legally savvy as they were, there was nothing they could do because everything had already been kind of decided on every level before then. They were just holding out a little bit of hope that because of any confusion that may have arisen between the reissued 598 patent in 1975 versus the 507 patent, that that would give them a little technical reason, essentially, to squirm free but that was not to be and so like everyone else they had to fall in line and that's kind of that's kind of the the story and then after that you know by 1990 the patent are done and so phillips can't sue anybody else 
but they successfully, over the course of over a decade, confirmed that the Magnavox Odyssey was not only the first video game system, but that it pioneered enough significant technologies that, legally speaking, everybody that did similar product had to pay that licensing fee if they wanted to play. Question. We said that with Activision that third-party software developers had to also pay a fee. Did that mean that anyone who made software for the Nintendo that wasn't Nintendo had to get a Magnavox license? If they created any games that specifically had that two objects colliding and one going off on a different vector, which not every third party necessarily did, I'm not sure that Magnavox or Philips bothered with a lot of them. Maybe because they were all Japanese and that made it more difficult, I don't know. Or maybe some of them did quietly get licenses and because it was all quietly done... No one knows. Also, Nintendo's, with all their lawyers, probably just said, as part of this, here, find this piece of paper and give this little bit of money to these people. That could be as well, because, of course, Nintendo controlled all software development on the system, so it could be that they took care, so to speak, of, of that licensing fee... Mm-hmm. in their contract i honestly don't know that that's very possible that'd be interesting to know but yeah but not every game automatically infringes because that's that's the other thing we talked about how people sometimes misunderstand it too narrowly and think it's only the table tennis games the other thing that people can sometimes do is interpret it too broadly and be like oh magnavox got a patent on video games so everyone that made video games had to pay them licenses and again that's that's too broad Right. Not every single video game infringes because you can't patent an idea that broadly. Broadly, So it's, it's not every video game. It's only the video games with both the collision and the bounce, which is not going to be every game. You have Galga, Space Invaders. That doesn't break those. Exactly. That kind of thing doesn't happen in any of those games. As time went on, the patents became less relevant because in the early days, when you had the ball and paddle craze, every game was contingent on this idea of bouncing off. And as the industry grew more sophisticated and more different genres of games were created, then over time, a smaller and smaller percentage of games actually fit that. Even if those patents had continued to persist for you know, a while longer, it, it would have meant less and less licensing revenue coming in. But of course, after 1990, it was a moot point anyway, because at that point, right. no longer applies. But it still covers the same time that Breakout was developed. Did mm-hmm. the people who made that? That was Atari. That was Atari. Okay, so Atari. Atari was paid up. Okay, Atari was safe on that point. <laughs> they can do all the bouncing balls they want. Exactly. All right. Is there anything else we want to cover with this one? I think that's pretty thorough. Yep, pretty thorough. Not quite as crazy as the Tetris one, but pretty close with all the, and you get sued, and you get sued, and everyone gets sued. Yeah, well, like I said, I do think it's it's kind of funny that so many patent attorneys just kind of assumed that at some point the technology became so far removed from the Odyssey technology that the patent couldn't possibly apply anymore. As we said, and don't really need to repeat it, that's just, that's just not the way the courts saw it. All right. In that case... What shall we delve into next time? Well, we've had a fair amount of focus on the console industry recently, I think it's fair to say, and we are trying to to mix things up at least a little bit. So maybe it's time to return to the arcade industry, which we haven't talked about much. We talked about Galaxy Game, but that was really a one-off. It wasn't part of the industry. And we had our big three-part deal on the crash, 
which we included the arcade stuff in, and kind of interesting to look at what the crash meant for the U.S. arcade industry and how that industry tried to recover and move on in the wake of that upheaval, because there was really quite a transformation that took place, and uh, I think it's worth discussing. All right, so we'll delve into the arcade industry and all the fun that happened after the crash next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at tcwpodcast.podbean.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Email us at tcwpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at tcwpodcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com forward slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. (laughs) 